You would think I was an old man the way the deal with me down here, wouldn't you? It's a real joy for me to be back in Cole Community Church. I haven't been here for quite a long while. And I want to thank the Lord and praise him for what he's doing here in Boise in the testimony of Cole Community. We just pray the Lord will increase your usefulness, enlarge your borders, that each one of you individually will have the joy of ministering to some soul a wonderful story of redeeming grace. Do you know there are tens of thousands of people in the state of Idaho, more in Washington, more in Oregon, that do not know the grace of God. Many have never heard it. I've been a pastor for I was pastor for 37 years in one church in Portland. You see, they couldn't get rid of me, so I stayed on. But I remember one time conducting a service for my neighbor. Uh, I had been away, just gotten home. The wife came to me and said, mentioned that her husband had passed away the day before. Would I take the service? He was a retired businessman. But after the service, I was standing outside in a, talking to one of my neighbors when a lady came up. I would say about 30, 32, if you can count the age of a lady, but I would say about 30 or 32, well-dressed, looked like a businesswoman. And she came to me and she shook my hand and she said, Thank you, sir. I have never heard such things in all my life. This is Portland. She'd been through college, university, and business. Never heard the story of redeeming grace. There are thousands around us who've got a distorted idea of what the gospel is. The gospel of God's marvelous redeeming grace. And don't you leave it to the preachers. God's put you right where you are, right where you live, right where you work for a purpose. You might witness for him. One of my men came to me one day and he said, I wish you'd pray for me. I said, anything special? He said, oh, yes. He said, I wish you'd pray for me that I might get another job. I said, what's the matter with the job you have? Oh, nothing. Satisfied with your wages? Oh, yes. Uh, Like your job? Yes. Well, what in the world do you want another job for? Well, he said, I would like to have a job where there'll be some other Christians. I'm the only Christian in the plant. Now, I like a job where there's some other Christians. You know what I said to him? I'm going to pray again, you. (laughs) I'm going to pray you'll stay where you are. If you leave, if you leave the shop, there's no testimony there. What do you think God's got you there for? I don't know what I'm talking about. I was a machinist, tool and dime maker for some years. When I became a Christian, I gave my testimony, and I'm telling you, the ball started rolling. And I mean that too. And I know what it means to take a stand for Christ among a group of ungodly people. But God's got you there because how are they going to hear about the Savior? They don't go to church. They don't mingle with Christian people. How are they going to hear it if you and I don't do it? Now, excuse me, I didn't want to... You pulled that out of me. (laughs) Uh, Your pastor asked me on 
he called me up last week in Portland. He said, what are you going to preach on? Oh, I said, I've been thinking about talking on Christ's present ministry. You hear very little about it. Christ's present ministry, which is found, as you know, in the book of Hebrews. And if I'm talking to any young Christians here this morning, may I suggest you read and reread three books in the New Testament. The book of Romans, where you have the revelation of his grace. I was told when I became a Christian to read Romans. I would be heresy-proof if I read Romans. And I didn't want to be a heretic. So when I went out preaching, what do you think I preached on? Romans. They thought the only book I had in the Bible was Romans. But that's the revelation of his grace. And then I would suggest the book of Ephesians, where God gave to Paul the revelation of the church, the body of Christ. The Romans, as I say, God gave Paul two revelations. The revelation of his grace is found in Romans. The revelation of the church, which is the body of Christ. And then I actually read Hebrews which deals with Christ's present ministry. Now, I'd like to spend a few moments with you this morning on this question of what is Christ doing today. I would like to read, first of all, two or three verses from the first chapter and then a couple of verses from chapter 4 for the starting of our study this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in or through his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, or the fourth shining of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 4, verse 14. And by the way, that just follows chapter 1, verse 3. The rest of chapter 1, uh, you have the superiority of Jesus as the Son of God over angelic beings. Chapter 2, you have... Our Lord is the Son of Man, superior to angelic beings. In chapter 3 and 4, you have a warning about unbelief. Now, you come to chapter 4, down to verse, down to verse uh, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace and there obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. You'll notice the chapter starts, first chapter starts with our Lord, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Four times in the book of Hebrews we read this. That when he finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of God. You find it in chapter 8, verse 1. You find it in chapter 10, verse 12. This man, by one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then chapter 12, the second verse. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down 
at the right hand of God. You know, my friends, one of the most marvelous things in the whole universe is that God made man for a purpose. Do you ever stop to think of it? When God made man, he made him for a purpose, and that purpose was intimate fellowship with God. God gave to man the capacity for fellowship with an infinite God. Angels don't have that, right? Thank God I'm not an angel. I don't look like one. I'm sure I don't act like one. But God made man for a purpose. Amos chapter 3, the third verse says, How can two walk together except they have an appointment? Did you know that you have an appointment with God? And I have an appointment with God? And God has an appointment with you. And your failures don't affect him keeping the appointment. Sin keeps you and me from the appointment. If you don't believe that, read chapters, chapter 3 of Genesis. In chapter 2, God made man. They had wonderful fellowship. Every evening, God came down and met with man. Chapter 3, what happened? Man rebelled. Man sinned. But God kept his appointment. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? He was over here hiding behind the trees. What are you hiding over there for? Well, I saw I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree? Or take that verse in John you saw it on the, on the overhead here a few minutes ago. John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that night, Peter's going to deny his Lord. Did Peter's denial affect Christ's love for Peter? Oh, no. Oh, no. He was loved to the end. Now, does that make me want to go out and sin? Of course not. When I realize the marvelous thing that you and I, creatures of the dust, can be redeemed out of sin and brought into the family of God where the eternal living God is my Father and your Father. At any time we can come into the very presence of God. That's what you have again in John 14, Hebrews chapter 4. Look at it. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, or our confession. We have not a high priest who can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's the only one who could ever say that. You and I see some other Christian doing things, and what do we do? We judge them. Hmm? Well, don't we? Of course, you wouldn't do it, but the other fellow did it. And you judge him in the light of your conscience. So the barrier comes between. No, my friend. We have a Savior on the throne of God. One who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. There's not a test you go through. He knows all about it. He knows all about it. And he's right there with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hmm? Do you know where that verse is? 
You don't read your Bibles, do you? Hebrews 13, you know where it is. As it is written, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. He's touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Now, I said a while ago, I mentioned Romans and Ephesians and Hebrews. And while you're doing your reading, you better read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know why? I find a lot of Christians, they're keen on doctrine, keen on theology, but they know so little of the tenderness and the compassion of the Son of God for somebody else. Huh? Oh, you'll die for your doctrine, yes. But you don't have any love for the failing brother, for the faltering saint. Touched. Our Savior's touched. If I'm talking to you this morning, and you have problems and tests and trials, and you get discouraged, remember, He knows what you're going through. I repeat it there's not a test in life that you and I can go through, but what He knows all about it. He's touched with a feeling of our infirmities. And he says, come on with confidence to the throne of grace. I know exactly what you're going through. And he'll meet your need. You know, friends, when I read the gospel and see my Savior, I have to hang my head in shame that I don't manifest more of his love and compassion. Not just for the believers who believe the same as I do, but for God's failing people go around with a club in our hands, beat them on the head, instead of loving them and encouraging them. You know, you can read the whole life of our Savior among men, and never once do you find Jesus saying anything that's bad about a woman. You know that? He never said a harsh word to a woman. He manifested grace and compassion. Do you know what the first miracle in Matthew is? Anybody? Now let down your hair a little bit. Don't be stick up, just relax and enjoy the word of God this morning. What's the first miracle in Matthew? Oh, you don't know, you don't read that. When I ask the students that, do you know what they generally say? He turned water into wine. That isn't even in Matthew. That's in John. <laughs> That's in John chapter 2. <coughs> it wouldn't fit in Matthew. You know, the first miracle in Matthew is in chapter 8. Way back in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied when Messiah comes. You'll know him when he comes. He'll open blind eyes. He cleansed the lepers. And the first miracle in Matthew is the cleansing of a leper. Just think of it. Leprosy, that vile, vile disease. Under Moses' law, they had to stay in, in the camp of the lepers. If anybody came near them, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean. But somehow or another, word it trickled through. 
to the camp of the lad. It was a man called Jesus, a Galilean, was cleansing lepers. This man believed the testimony, and he got out on the road, and down came Jesus. And I'm sure that the disciples were way behind him when they got near a leper. And instead of this man shouting out, unclean, do you know what he said to Jesus? If you want to, you can make me clean. He didn't question his power. He questioned his willingness. Now, if it had been you or me, do you know what we would have done? He said, now, just, you keep over there, brother. You've got leprosy. You're dirty. You can stay over there. You've got a vile disease. And I'll pray for you that you'll be healed. Huh? That's not like Jesus. Do you know what he did? He went over to the leper and laid hold of him. This is the first time in years the man has ever felt the touch of love. The Lord laid hold of him. said, I will be thou clean. The man was cleansed of his leprosy. What a matter. That touch of love. That touch of love. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I'll take that story in Luke chapter 7. Or in John chapter 8. Either one you want to. How our Lord dealt with this dear sinful woman. Do you remember he had been invited by Simon the Pharisee to have dinner with him. And while they were reclining at dinner, in came this woman who was a sinner. And let me tell you something. She would never, never, never have attempted or wanted to walk into the house of Simon the Pharisee. She never dreamed of going to his house. But you see, Jesus was there. And wherever Jesus is, the repentant sinner has full access. Did you hear me? Here's a woman barges into the house. She falls at Jesus' feet. Her tears roll down. She wipes him with her hair. An unwomanly thing to let down her hair. Then wipe tears off took her alabaster box of ointment and anointed his feet. And over here's the old Pharisee. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman she is. Look at him. He's letting her wash his feet with her tears, wipes him with the head of her head, a disgraceful thing. I thought he was a prophet. You can just see that picture. That's the way too many of us act. Jesus said, Simon, I want to talk to you, man. You know, a certain man had two, two debtors. One owed him 500 pennies. The other fellow owed him 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them all. Now, what do you say? Which one would forgive him most? Oh, said Simon, I suppose he that was forgiven most. You can just see that old Pharisee. And then I read this amazing thing. And the Lord, I don't know how you read your Bibles, but get there in the room and look at it. Don't read it as if something afar off. Get right in the room. And I can see that old Pharisee 
Look at it. And then the Lord Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon over here, Simon, do you see this woman? You don't see this woman. You see her as she was, an old sinner. I see her as the redeemed sinner. I came into your house. You didn't wash my feet. She hasn't stopped washing them. You didn't even give me a kiss of welcome. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint me with oil. Courteous thing. She's poured her riches, her treasures upon me. And her sins, which are many, are what? Are forgiven. Take that, that woman in chapter 8 of Luke. Our Lord is here in the temple. He's been sitting down teaching the people the word of God. You can just see hundreds of people around him in that big courtyard. All of a sudden, there's a little commotion. A bunch of old Pharisees preached, and they, they drag in a woman. She's just fighting all along the way, you know. And they threw her down at Jesus' feet, and they said, according to Moses' law, this woman ought to be stoned. We caught her in the act of adultery. According to Moses' law, she ought to be stoned. Boy, now we've got him. Now we've got him. If he says stone her, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. If he says let her go, he's breaking Moses' law. So whatever he says, we got him. What do you think Jesus said? Nothing. He just wrote on the ground. He ignored these peeping toms. When they persisted, he raised his head and he said, Okay, let him that is without sin, and a strong implication, the same sin of the woman, let him that is without sin cast your stone. He wrote in the ground again, didn't even look up. Here's the whole crowd watching this thing. And I read from the oldest one to the youngest one of these old hypocrites. They didn't go out in the crowd. That would be too obvious. Which, if you're without sin, cast your stone. Go ahead, obey Moses' law, if you're without sin. And the oldest one just sneaked out. You can just see that. The next one sneaked out. And when they're all sneaked out, then the Lord looked up. He said to the woman, What are your accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither, I, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Transform woman. You see, that's where the Lord Jesus acts. He comes right. He just loves us. He knows your need. And these women were never again the same. You can't come into the presence of Jesus the Son of God, and ever again be the same. It's touched with a feeling of our infirmity. Or, if you like, I might give you another one. Take John chapter 11. His friend Lazarus has died. And Mary and Martha sent word to our Savior. He was on the other side of Jordan. It takes two days to walk from where he was after Bethany near Jerusalem. Time the messenger got there and went back, Lazarus had died and was already in the grave. 
And the Lord stayed there down on the other side of Jordan. Then he said to the disciples, let's go. I'm going to wake him out of his sleep. Oh, they said, well, Lord, what's all the hurry? If he's sleeping, he does well. And the Lord said, well, I'll tell you plainly, he's dead. But I've got to wake him. You remember the story. I'm going to go all the detail of it. Just the one thing I'm after. Martha came first and said a few words, so on. He came to Mary. Mary met him. Mary fell at his feet. And Mary said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Tears rolling down the cheeks. The women around, tears rolling down their cheeks. Now I'll tell you something. If that had been Mitchell there with the power of resurrection... Or if it had been you, whatever your name is, the chances are that you would have said, Now girls, now girls, just to dry your tears. I'm going to raise your brother from the dead. So no use crying. I'm going to give Lazarus back to you. That's the way you and I would have acted cold-bloodedly. Not Jesus. He took the time out. This one who framed the ages, upholds all things by the word of his power. By him all things are held together. He speaks and it's done. He's going to raise the dead. He took the time out to stand with Mary and the women. Think of the Son of God weeping. But you see, friend, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. And if you have gone through a test and the Lord's brought you through the test, you've learned something of the presence of Christ in the test. You're able to meet somebody else who's going through the same test. And you can end up, there's a bond of sympathy there. I could give you illustration after illustration of how God just does that thing. How you come in when nobody else, nobody else seems to understand what you're going through. Not even your close relationships. They've never been through it. They don't know what I'm going through. My friend, he does. He's touched. The feeling of our infirmities. So he says, come on with confidence to the throne of grace. And there obtain mercy and find grace to help. And every time, if you know, I could stay there the rest of the morning. I want to go on. I want you to fall in love with your Bible. I mean, chapter 6, we have four things at the end of chapter 6. I'm, not, I'm just going to mention them. You don't need to uh, just talk about it. You'll notice in verses 18, 19, and 20, there are four things. We have a refuge. He's my refuge. He's my hope. He's my anchor. He's my forerunner. And the forerunner is the guarantee that everyone who is in him they can go wherever he is. If my Savior has gone into the presence of God as my forerunner, that's the guarantee that I too shall come into the presence of God as my Savior. Wonderful thing. But go to chapter 7. And I'm reading from verse 24 to 25 of chapter 7. The preceding part of the chapter by where he's contrasting our Savior's priesthood with the ironic priesthood. 
And he says in verse 24, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save to the uttermost, or to save perfectly, to save completely, all that come unto God by him. Why? Because he ever liveth to make intercession for them. It's an astounding thing, believer in Christ. To uphold the universe, he just speaks. He just speaks. But to keep you for himself and to guarantee you a perfect salvation, he prays for you. He never stops praying for you. Did you hear me? You see, the Aaronic priesthood always ended with death. A fellow served for 40 years, then he's out. Another fellow takes his place. He lives so many years, he's out. Another one takes his place. And if you change from Aaron to Christ, you must change from law to grace. If I change my priesthood, I must change my covenant. And if I turn from the ironic priesthood, which is concerning the law, you can't, you can't separate the law and the priesthood. So if I change my covenant from, change my priesthood from Aaron to Christ, I must change my covenant from law to grace. And how is Jesus Christ so superior to the rest? Because his priesthood started after death. Hence, it's an unchangeable priesthood. It's an eternal priesthood. In the ironic priesthood, continual change, continual change, continual change. They can't perfect the people of God. As the preceding verse in the chapter said, if perfection whereby the Levitical priesthood for honor to receive the law, there'd be no need for a change. If a person could be saved by keeping the law, on the Aaronic priesthood, there'd be no need for a savior. But because it couldn't do the job, God sent his son, who put away your sin, revealed the heart of God to man, went back to heaven, and is on the throne. As I said a while ago, there's a real man on the throne. He's praying for you. He never gets tired praying for you. Do you ever get tired praying? Huh? Well, I'll tell you something. If you can't sleep at nights, and I'm talking from experience, by the way, if you can't sleep at night, roll out on your knees and start to pray. You'll soon be asleep. It's just like old Peter. Peter was a good sleeper, you know. He slept on the Mount of Transfiguration. He slept in the garden. He slept in jail. I can say, well, Lord, I've got good company. I'm in Peter's company, eh? No. He never goes to sleep. The Lord never goes to sleep. Wherefore, he is able to save perfectly everyone, everyone who comes to him because he's praying for you. You see, friend, he's not praying for the world. As John 17, 9 declares, our Lord said, I pray not for the world, Remember that amazing prayer of our Savior in John 17. Nineteen times he talks about the world. I pray not for the world. He finished the job for the world. He died for the world. Just praying for believers. 
I'm amazed at God's provision. Our Lord in heaven is praying for you and me. The Spirit of God is praying for you and me. And we pray for each other, don't we? By the way, who's going to pray for the unsaved? Christ isn't. He died for them. Holy Spirit isn't. Who's going to pray for the unsaved? That's your job and my job. I suppose you want a scripture for that, don't you? Well, I suggest First Timothy chapter 2. I exhort there that first of all, first of all, intercession, the giving of thanks, be made for all men, for all that are in authority, and so on. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And one of the preceding verses says, For God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's provided a mediator. But let me get back. Christ is taking care of my interests up there. And the Spirit of God is taking care of his interests in me and you. That's what Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, you remember. We don't even know how to pray as we ought. <laughs> I always think of that verse, you know. You come and ask people, will you do this? Will you take this children's class? Oh, oh, oh I can't do that, I can't do that. Well, uh, will you play the piano in a little home Bible class? Oh, oh, I can't play the piano either. Well, will you go from door to door and invite the kids to come to the class? Oh, I couldn't do that. Well, what in the world can you do? Oh, I can pray. Oh, brother, brother, that's the best of all. But do you pray? Romans 8, 26, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit helped with our infirmities. He makes intercession for the saints with groanings that can't be uttered. And he on the throne, who knows the mind of the Spirit, knows what you and I have need of, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I have an intercessor up there taking care of my interests. I've got great interests up there. And he's got great interests in you and me. He bought us. Acts 20, 28 says he bought us for himself. Do you know when you buy something for yourself, you can hardly wait to get to the store to get what you want. Is that right? Somebody else buys you a tie. You look at it. Well, I can't wear that. I don't have a shirt that meets that. I haven't got a suit that meets that. But when you go yourself, you can just buy what you want. And I looked you all over this morning. You talk about the grace of God. He picked you, me up. And he redeemed us. Left us down here in our frailty and weakness. But he's praying for us. Never gets tired praying for us. And he knows exactly what we go through, he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Come on with boldness then to the throne of grace. Your Lord is praying for you. As he could say to Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. Find that in remember, Luke chapter 22. And dear old Peter says, Lord, you didn't pray for me. I'll go to jail for you. I'll die for you. Oh, you watch all these steps down. This dear man who said he'd go to jail, I find him denying the law with oaths and curses. 
But the Lord still loved him. He was praying for him. Peter failed. But not his faith. And the Lord turned and looked on Peter. Broke Peter's heart. Not a look of, of judgment or disappointment. Look of love. You're my Peter. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Ah, that's my Savior. He knows he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What time are we supposed to be through? It's 12 o'clock. Anybody in a hurry here? <laughs> well, now listen. It's just 12 o'clock, are you? Good night. It's, you're not hungry anyhow. Uh, if you go to my next one, it'll be chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 24. Let me just take a moment on this. I want to whet your appetite to get into your Bibles. Supposing we go to verse, uh, verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's my, he's your living representative. How does God see you, my friend? He either sees you in your sin or he sees you in Christ, his son. When I came as a sinner and I accepted the Savior, he put me in his son and he never sees me any further in sin. He sees me in his son. He's my living representative. If I were teaching Romans, I'd point out, my friend, you cannot stand in the presence of God acceptably unless you have a righteousness that equals the righteousness of God. But where can I get that? Just one place, that's in Christ. You know, Ephesians 1, 6 says, We're accepted in the Beloved. All that Christ is before the Father, that's where the believer is. Righteous. As Isaiah says, I will clothe thee with the garments of righteousness. That's why in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Isaiah 32 says that the work of righteousness is peace. The effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Acts 32, 17 for Isaiah. Stand before God in all the beauty and righteousness of Christ. He's my left representative. So I Paul goes in Philippians 1, 6. He which hath begun a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church in chapter 5, 23 and 4, when he said, Now the God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole being, spirit, soul, body, be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Now, as Paul gave his own testimony in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he's able to guard the deposit till that day. 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy to the only wise God our Savior and so on. The book of Jude, verse 24. Want to multiply the passages. He's now in heaven for us. He's our living representative. Isn't that wonderful? God never sees any of his children apart from his Savior. He not only is touched with a feeling of my infirmities and is sufficient for my daily needs, but he represents me. God never sees his people apart from his Son. So we stand before God in all the beauty and all the righteousness and loveliness of Christ. Well, what are you doing down here, Mitchell? Well, I'm down, down here. I'm to be a channel to relay the wonderful grace of God, the wonderful love of God to somebody else that they may enjoy it too. That's your responsibility also. Why do you think he left us down here for a purpose? Not going to send angels. You say, well, I, I can't do anything. Well, listen. An angel appeared unto Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, you remember. Why didn't the angel tell him how to be saved? No, send down to Joppa down there. There's an old commercial fisherman there called Peter. Never been to school. Hmm? You know what the address was? He was living with Simon the Tanner. Just follow your nose, you'll get him. You'll find him. If you know what I'm talking about, a tanning factory. Not an angel who never sins. An angel who excels in strength. No, 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 no. Go down to that old commercial fisherman. Whatever your business may be, whatever your job may be, God puts you there for a purpose. All he wants is you to bear testimony, live for him. And your living is far more, shall I say, I'm looking for a word that I can't find. Give me your dictionary, I'm trying to find it. He wants you to be his channel of expression. Not just your talk, but your very life. The transformation of your life. Bring them to him. Just one more, briefly. And that's in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going out of Hebrews. 1 John chapter 2. And I'll just send a, spend a second here. Chapter 2, the first verse, says this. My little children... These things write I unto you that you sin not. Talking about believers. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. One who pleads our cause before God. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. My Savior in heaven, pleading my cause. My representative, yes, but also my advocate when I fail. You remember dear old Job? 
In the first two chapters of Job, God said to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? Now there's a righteous man. There's a righteous man. You remember the story of how Satan said, Ah, yes, you've given Job so much. Why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he obey you? Look what you've given to him. Well, take it away, take it away. So he lost everything. His family. All his property. Ah, yes, but you touch him in himself. He'll curse you. Go ahead and do but don't take his life. And here he's sitting with a filthy disease. Chapter after chapter. You know what his cry is? You know what the yearning of his heart is? I'm quoting from chapter, the end of chapter 9, the end of chapter 16, where Job says, oh, if I had somebody. He's crying for a, a mediator. He's crying for an advocate. Somebody who could put his hand on God. Put his hand on me. <laughs> In that wonderful, you and I don't have to cry to God for an advocate or a mediator. My Savior on the throne in glory meets every need I have. He pleads my cause when I fail. He prays that I'll be complete in him. And I'll tell you his prayers will be answered. And every one of us who put our trust in the Savior will stand before him in all the beauty and righteousness of Christ. I'm not surprised when you come to the end of your Bible and Jesus said to John, Surely I come quickly. And John responds, Even so, Lord. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And remember, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. There's not much time left to us as Christians to live for him in this world and to bear testimony to others. I'll leave this with you. It's all in the book. Let me see your Bibles. Oh, you got the NIV. <laughs> you should have the King James. All right. Father, as we bow before you this morning, we thank you again. Oh, how we thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, for your tenderness, for your compassion for your people. Would indeed that all of us, Mitchell included, would know more and more of your present ministry for us. You have us on your heart and in your heart. You love us with an everlasting love. You love us clean through to the end. And you will not be satisfied until each one of us stand before you in all the beauty and righteousness of Christ, conformed to his image, and to have eternal unbroken fellowship with thee, the living God, who has become our Father. We pray your richest blessing again upon this assembly. Bless its testimony in this whole area. O oh Lord, grant some way you'll move among your people in the Boise area. And may there be great outpouring of the Spirit of God. There be a great in gathering of precious souls and believers to be established and built up in Christ. And may each one of us from this morning forth go walk in fellowship with yourself. Keep our appointment with you. And make us to realize that you have us in your heart. And Father, 
May all of us men and women here this morning exalt you in our hearts and lives. And may you be the object of our affection and our devotion day by day, hour by hour. Grant this, we pray, for your own precious name's sake.